Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Atlanta Art Week is a new initiative focusing on our city's thriving art ecosystem. Kendra Walker is the founder. Later, she'll tell us about events at more than 20 participating art galleries and cultural organizations starting September 29th. In May, we kicked off our new food series, Atlanta's Savory Stories. In each episode, we explore our city's culinary history and spotlight a few local restaurants related to that topic. Today's edition focuses on Caribbean and Mexican food in honor of National Hispanic Heritage Month. Here are our food contributors for this series, Chef Asseter Reed and culinary historian Akila McConnell. It is September, and that means it's Hispanic and Latinx Heritage Month. So we are so excited today to talk about the food of this expansive and incredible community. Uh, Now, this is a huge community, so today we're just going to be focusing on the Caribbean and Mexico. But before we delve too far ahead, uh, let's talk definitions. Asada, what do you think? Okay, what you got? Okay, so we're going to be using a lot of terms throughout this tour. Now, first off, Hispanic is a person who identifies with the Spanish-speaking culture or has roots in a Spanish-speaking country. Now, on the other hand, Latinx, which is the gender-neutral term for a Latino or a Latina, is a person who identifies with Latin American culture or has roots in a Latin American country. Throwing another term at you, now Chicano or Chicano is used interchangeably with Mexican-American. And these terms are very important because a person who is Hispanic may not be Latinx or Chicano, while a person who is Latinx may not be Hispanic. Okay, say a little bit more about that. Clear that up for us. (laughs) Yeah, so for example, a Brazilian would be considered Latinx because they have roots in Latin America, but they would not be considered Hispanic because Brazil is not a Spanish-speaking country. Now, 
And this becomes actually really important because many Afro-Latinas and indigenous people consider themselves to be Latinx because they have roots in Latin America, but not Hispanic because they don't identify with Spanish speaking culture. Mm -hmm. Flipping it, a Puerto Rican would be considered Hispanic because they have roots in a Spanish speaking territory, but they would not be considered Latinx because Puerto Rico is not considered part of Latin America. Okay. Okay. I got it. It's a little complicated, but I got it. It is complicated, but you know, this reflects this very complex history of the Hispanic and Latinx people as well. So let's back up a little bit. Um, and I want to, you know, just straight away, let's agree on a couple of things, which is that the Hispanic people were the first Europeans in the United States of America, across Central America and South America. Spanish was the first European language spoken on American soil. And when you look at the United States of America, the first governors of the U.S. colonies, the first European governors were Spanish governors. Um, in fact, you know, the Spanish settled in San Juan, Puerto Rico over 85 years before the British settled in Jamestown, Virginia. And if we're talking about the continental U.S., the first European settlement was in St. Augustine, Florida, which was established over 50 years before Jamestown. And if we skip over to the West Coast, you know, Spaniards established the Pueblo of Los Angeles or Los Angeles 70 years before Anglos landed on North American soil. Okay, so when you consider this history, you can see that the Hispanic and Latinx influence on our food has clearly been around for centuries. Absolutely. And that history impacts what Hispanic and Latinx cuisine is today, because Latin American cuisine is a very much a fusion cuisine. So, um, you know, taking it back a little bit, one major difference between the colonies of Anglo America, so that's British America, versus Spanish America was that the Spanish soldiers and explorers frequently married indigenous women while the British did not. Hmm. So as an example, in 1691, British Virginia banned Anglo native marriages, but in Spanish Florida at the same time, the Spanish government officially considered the native people to be vassals of Spain or part of Spain. Um, and mixed race marriages were not only accepted, but encouraged. And those intermarriages impacted the foods of Latin American colonies. Across the Americas, the indigenous people had advanced agricultural and culinary techniques, and the women actually brought these techniques to their marriages. Mm -hmm. uh, in St. Augustine, for example, archaeologists have found that the tools from the 1600s vary widely depending on gender. So kitchen implements from that time period are Native American in design using the mono and the metate, which are both hand grinders for corn, while the weapons that were used by men were of Spanish design. Wow, Akila! once again, you make history so fascinating. And you know, it makes sense that Native women would use their own cooking techniques and tools and that those cooking techniques would be passed on to their daughters and so on and so on. Exactly. And across Latin America and the Caribbean, the foods that the Latinx people eat today have deep roots with indigenous foods and techniques. It's actually why the food that you eat in Latin America is so different from Spanish cuisine. 
because Spanish cuisine is a European cuisine, while the food of Latin America is heavily dominated by Native American ingredients and methodologies. Okay, so what's an example of one of these ingredients or methodologies? So the very, very best example, probably my favorite example, one of my very favorite foods is corn. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you can do everything with corn, right? Yes. Oh, my gosh. So corn, if you didn't know, was actually invented by the Mesoamerican people. I'm not talking about corn foods. I'm talking about corn itself. The actual plant. The actual plant. Uh, The indigenous people of southern Mexico, they first domesticated corn about 10,000 years ago, and they cultivated corn from a wild grass known as teosinte. And by the way, modern scientists have tried to duplicate what these indigenous people did, and they have been unable to successfully do this in the way that these indigenous people converted this grass into corn. That Um, knowledge has been lost to time. It has been, but um, even though the knowledge on how they domesticated it has been lost, the methodologies they used with that corn, we're still using all those methodologies today. Uh, So what the Aztecs and the Mayan people used to do is they would soak corn kernels in an alkaline solution. So this is actually basically water that is saturated with wood ash. So the ash from your uh, fire. And Mm -hmm. uh, this really softens the corn kernels and pulls the skin of the kernel off. And this is known as hominy which you have probably heard of. Mm -hmm. Um, The women used to hand grind the hominy into a fine dough called masa. And uh, the Mayan and Aztec people, they used to stuff vegetables and meats into the masa dough. They would cover the masa with leaves and then they would cook these masa bundles in the hot ashes in a slow buried fire. Mm-hmm. Um, now this, these leaf wrapped masa dough bundles, uh, these were foods that were carried by warriors on long journeys. Um, they were made by women in these pre-Columbian civilizations for feasts. Uh, and this food, you know, it was prepared. I mean, there's actually archeological evidence showing it has been prepared since eight thousand BC. So this is 10,000 years ago. And we continue to eat this identical food today. Do you know what it is, Asada? Okay. Leaf leaf wrapped stuffed masa screams tamale. Uh, You've got it. That is right, (laughs) the tamale. And, um, you know, the Spaniards did make some changes to the tamale. The biggest change that they made is the Spaniards brought Uh, iron pots where the indigenous people used ceramics. Um, The Spaniards uh, brought iron pots. And so what the indigenous women began doing was they would steam the tamale rather than cooking them buried in ash, uh, which is what we do today. Um, So another brilliant Aztec invention um, was a flatbread made of corn uh, created from masa dough. That bread could be easily transported, cooked on an early flat clay griddle. Um, Asada, do you know what that one is? 
Yeah, let me guess. That's got to be a tortilla. Tortillas, exactly. And, and the tortilla was such a staple of the Aztec diet. There were actually like myths and traditions in Aztec society associated with the tortilla. For example, if a woman was cooking a tortilla and it doubled over on her griddle, then the Aztecs believed that there would be an imminent arrival of a visitor because the visitor would kick the door um, and that foretold that, you know, the tortilla would double over, you know, like basically kicking over this tortilla. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I always find this really fascinating because uh, the Spanish empire colonized the Native American lands. Uh, and, you know, you think about it, it's really ironic. The Spanish demanded that the indigenous people adopt Christianity and adopt the Spanish language. Mm -hmm. And the Spanish settlers thought, oh, well, we are converting these people into being Spanish. But the food that they were eating was largely indigenous cuisine because the women were doing the cooking, which not just shows the power of women, but also <laughs> right. shows the power of food. And, you know, yeah. all of these foods um, that we consider classically, you know, Latinx and Hispanic, uh, they reflect these indigenous traditions and techniques um, combined with Spanish influences as well as the influences of West African cuisine as the enslaved Africans were brought over into the Americas. That really resonates because I just had this great conversation with chef and restaurateur Hector Santiago about how he defines his food. He's originally from Puerto Rico and he opened the award-winning Pura Vida Tapas restaurant in the Ponce Highlands neighborhood. Um, the restaurant closed in 2012, and Chef Santiago went on to open El Burro Pollo, which is a Mexican street burritos and ceviche concept, and two locations of El Super Pan, which serves Cuban-style sandwiches and Puerto Rican dishes. And I was just curious, with all of this influence and influence that he has, I was really curious as to how he described his cuisine, and this is what he had to say. So I call it Latin America. Because really, we had different restaurants, right? Over there, we, we play more with the flavors of the Caribbean and the Spanish Caribbean. So, you know, that would be, to me, because I'm Puerto Rican, it's mostly Puerto Rican. It's basically a Puerto Rican bakery. Yet, a Puerto Rican bakery in San Juan, the owners of 50% of them are Cuban. You know, so you see that influence of Cuban food and really Spanish food. That's something that you find also a lot over there. So if you haven't been to any of his restaurants, his food is always incredible. And Puerto Rico is an excellent example of fusion cuisine, really, which you can see particularly in the mofongo. The mofongo is a Puerto Rican national dish, and it's mashed green plantain stuffed with sofrito or pork and a perfect example of this fusion cuisine. Have you been to Puerto Rico, Aquila? I have, and it's so beautiful, such an amazingly beautiful um, territory, but also the food is so good. And you're absolutely right that you just see mofongo everywhere. So in 2015, 
Uh, Chef Santiago opened the first El Superpan in Ponce City Market. And in 2018, he opened El Superpan in the Battery. And it's a much larger restaurant with a, an extended menu. Um, but the menus at both locations are Puerto Rican and Cuban influenced. And the attention to detail on the food makes eating here an experience. The Pont City Market location is really just a bar with a few tables surrounding where you can eat, but the food and the cocktails are stellar. And on a Friday evening, the vibe totally shifts to party mode around 6 p.m. as the DJ sets up and starts playing salsa music. Feel free to get up and dance. Everybody's doing it. Um, and it's like an instant party. So you might as well go ahead and order another round of that hibiscus mojito, which is my absolute fave. Um, the Cuban style sandwiches are on point, but those bowls of mofongo just stole my heart. It is so tough not share. And um, you can get that with the roast pork or the sofrito chicken or the shrimp ajil. All of it's delicious. And for our vegetarian friends, there's even a smoked tofu meatless option. Here, the mofongo is vegan. And uh, Chef Santiago did that intentionally. Uh, you are making me so hungry, you know, but mofongo is not just present in Puerto Rico, but in other Caribbean islands as well. You know, in the Dominican Republic, it is called mangu. In Cuba, it's called fufu de platano. And I know we have some amazing Cuban restaurants in Atlanta as well, right, Asta? We do. We're so lucky to have some really good Cuban restaurants in Atlanta, but I want to give a shout out to the OG Atlanta Keepers of Hispanic Cuisines. These are restaurants who have 20 years under their belt, who have been representing Hispanic and Latin cuisine right here in the ATL. And the first are two Cuban restaurateurs who came from Cuba to Atlanta. So in 1962, Eddie Benedy Sr. and his family came from Cuba to the U.S., and in 1974, they opened a sandwich shop on Buford Highway, where North Druid Hills turns into East Roxborough Road. If you are here, it's for the sandwiches, the empanadas, the homestyle Cuban plates. This is honest, straightforward Cuban food, like you rolled up in someone's abuela's house, right down to the desserts and the batitos, which are milkshakes if you haven't had them. The family recipes were handed from Eddie Sr. to Eddie Jr., who literally grew up in the restaurant. His mother found out she was pregnant with him two weeks after the family opened up the Havana Sandwich Shop. Can you imagine? Like, I... you to a new country, you open a business, <laughs> and you have a baby. Oh, in span of time. <laughs> I know it. Um, and, you know, it just goes to show what incredible entrepreneurs they are. And I actually feature the Havana Sandwich Shop in my book, A Culinary History of Atlanta, because they really and truly are the original Hispanic restaurant in Atlanta they paved the way when few restaurants were serving Latin American cuisine and the people of Atlanta just could not get enough of the bed and beets incredible cuisine. Absolutely. And they paved the way for other OG members like Poppy's Cuban Grill. Reynaldo Regalado fled Cuba in 1990 and opened the first Poppy's, which is dedicated to his father, hence the name, in 2002. I think Poppy's Midtown was the first place I ever ate a Cubano sandwich many years ago. Um, and now there are five metro locations as far north, north as Kennesaw and then luring our international guests at Atlanta's airport. The standouts for me, the traditional Cuban yuca con mojo. For some reason, I love and crave that dish. The lechon asado plate. Again, we've got that slow roasted pork and raised Cuban sandwich. 
But if I've left off your favorite restaurant, don't worry. I've put more suggestions for Cuban, Puerto Rican, and Dominican restaurants on the website. Chef Asada Reed and culinary historian Akila McConnell, our food contributors for this series, Atlanta's Savory Stories. We'll be back with more of that conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Let's return to more of our series Atlanta's Savory Stories. Our food contributors, the culinary historian Akila McConnell and Chef Asada Reed have been taking us through Atlanta's Mexican and Caribbean food history in honor of National Hispanic Heritage Month. Here, McConnell helps us understand the history of Mexican restaurants in Atlanta. To understand that, we actually need to talk about how there was this huge shift that happened in the 1990s. So Prior to the 1990s, there were very few Hispanic people living in Atlanta. Like uh, you just said, Asada, I mean, really and truly speaking, uh, Havana Sandwich Shop was one of the few uh, Hispanic restaurants at the time. But the switch happened with the construction boom accompanying the 1996 Olympics, resulting in a growth of 130% of Hispanic population between 1990 to 1995. That's just five years. It's five years, exactly. Okay. And uh, the Mexican Atlantan population specifically grew significantly with over 75% of the incoming Hispanic population at that time identifying as originating in Mexico. Uh, and that was the start of the boom. But today, 11% of Metro Atlanta residents identify as Hispanic or Latinx, and the majority continues to be of Mexican descent. That is a huge population influx. Um, also, that resulted in an increase in Mexican cuisine here. Atlanta loves Mexican food. There's Mexican food, ITP, OTP, in all corners and between and beyond Atlanta. I mean, in fact, every little college town in Georgia will have at least one Mexican restaurant. And the range in personality and cuisine runs the gambit. The style of Mexican cuisines offered in Atlanta has become more nuanced and regional over the years. 
Once it was like big plate cantinas with old school platters filled with rice and beans, accompanying classics like chili rellenos, enchiladas, and burritos that dominated the foodscape. But now you can eat Mexican cuisine from regions across the country and even from former Mexican territories like Texas and California. So let's take it back to the original. We have to give a shout out to another OG, and this is El Rey del Taco, the king of tacos indeed. This establishment has been anchored about one mile inside of 285 on Buford Highway for almost 20 years. It's open for lunch, it's open late, and the parking lot is never empty. El Rey is exactly what pops into mind when someone says, hey, let's go get some Mexican. Big plates showcasing hospitality at its finest. It's not fancy, but it is all about the food and it has a six page menu. So it's in Spanish and English. So if you don't know what you're ordering, it'll break it down for you right then and there. And if you can think it, it's here, including house-made fresh tortillas and salsa, which is a, that's how I measure the standard of a restaurant. House-made tortillas <laughs> and salsa. It's like, if you're not making the tortillas and the salsa, what are we talking about here? <laughs> There's also a lot of seafood options and the whole barnyard. I'm talking beef, pork, chicken, goat. For me, it's the lingua tacos. That's another way that I measure a restaurant. Like, how's the lingua? Um, so all sorts of people walk through the door to get a sizzling taste of Mexican cuisine in that very busy dining room. And again, hospitality is the theme. The staff are friendly, efficient, and focused on getting you what you want. So if you don't know, ask questions. I have to tell you, I absolutely love the food at El Rey Del Taco. It's actually one of the very first restaurants I ever ate at on Beaufort Highway. Uh, and this is back, I'd say, about 20 years ago now. Um, so I, I must have gone there right after it opened. And it was amazing back then, continues to be amazing today. Uh, but, you know, one of my favorites nowadays that I go to a lot on the east side is a Patria Cucina. Oh, Patria Cucina. So I have a soft spot for this restaurant and its owners, Roxana and Octavio Aguirre, were raised in Mexico and came to Atlanta from California. And they opened El Mexicano on Moreland Avenue back in 2014. And that restaurant closed in 2018 to the chagrin of faithful patrons such as myself. That's what Me my too. I was so upset about El Mexicano closing. So upset. <laughs> Very much so. That was my husband and I, uh, we would go there for lunch as like our date night because we had young kids and date night was just hard. So we would just go for like date lunch. <laughs> anyway, we got to talking because uh, we have baby boys around the same age and everything. And I just really loved them as, as the, the staff, the, the owners, the food. When they closed, we were so sad. But they opened Patrio Cochino in The Beacon, which is uh, near Grant Park in 2018. And it took the menu to a whole nother level. Um, it expanded it to cuisines across Mexico. And it has the fine dining techniques that Octavio carry into the industry in the first place. So he gets to express himself more through this menu. Then the pandemic hit and Patria Cucina shifted to what they're calling a limited menu, but it's really not limited at all. And they continue to focus on fresh ingredients, scratch cooking, and elegant presentation. I love the feel of the new restaurant. It's not new anymore, but compared to the old restaurant, it's open, it's bright. The patio is large and shaded and the bar represents tequila, lots of tequila and mezcals that are just authentically Mexican. 
Um, they also have seasonal cakes, homemade flan and churros with ice cream, my kids love. But what I really love about Roxana and Octavio and this place is the hospitality. Uh, that's such the focus of Mexican food and they bring it, they bring it to the dining room. They bring it back of the house, front of the house. Their hospitality is reflected in their restaurant because it's a gathering place. And they really invite the community in, especially during Dia de los Muertos, where they set up a huge ofrenda and have a special menu and a live mariachi come in. I mean, it's, it's like a couple days of just pure celebration. Uh, you know, I, I so agree with you, but honestly, I feel like it's a celebration every time you go in there. I often go there with friends and family. It's just a favorite place. But, you know, talking about Mexican food, I think we need to talk a little bit about Tex-Mex and Cali-Tex as well. Uh, there's this impression that people say that, you know, oh, Tex-Mex isn't real Mexican or Cali-Mex isn't real Mexican. But here's what I want our listeners to remember. From a historical perspective, it's very important to remember that Texas and most of the West Coast of the United States were Spanish American colonies or parts of the Republic of Mexico since the 1500s. So that means that Texas and California were parts of Mexico for 300 plus years. They have only been part of the Anglo United States for the last 200 years. Um, the Mexican culture is just deeply rooted in California and Texas. Uh, the Tejonos, uh, who are the original Mexican and Spanish settlers in Texas, the Tejanos played a huge role in creating the types of foods that continue to be eaten there today. Well, that leads me to Supremo Taco, because the California vibes are really high here. The website describes their cuisine as Chicano roadside inspired, definitely SoCal style, and a tribute to early pioneers of Mexican cooking in America. Folks should check out their website. It's pretty woke. Um, here are the three elements of a taco shine. These are my three elements, how I define a taco. One, the tortilla, hot off the griddle. Two, the boldly flavored toppings. And three, Again, the house-made salsas. A lot of people focus on taco fillings, but the tortilla and the salsas are equally important for a spectacular taco. Okay, I feel like we need to do a sidebar here, Akila, because you and I, we've talked a lot about tacos and our love for them. I feel like I need to say a word. Like for our listeners, if you haven't had tacos, not just here at Supremo Taco, but anywhere where the love is poured into the ingredients. They are a revelation. The toothiness of the tortilla is made earthy by toasting it over high heat on a tamal or a griddle. The juiciness and the texture of the hot and cold ingredients, hot or cold, because you can have aguachile, which would be cold, that fill the taco are, are a play against the texture of the tortilla. And then the salsa or even the consomme that you accent the taco with punctuates with either acidity or spice and when you bite into your taco you get that one perfect bite in every bite and there's a reason why everyone loves tacos in fact we'll probably just do an episode solely dedicated to tacos but I just wanted to put that out there I totally feel you on that that essentiality of it I'm not sure if that's a word but if it is the essentialness <laughs> of that great tortilla and mm. that, I mean, especially the fresh made tortillas, those fresh made salsas, so crucial to creating that perfect taco. 
Yeah. So let's go back to Supremo Taco for just a second. The concept comes from chefs Dwayne Coolers and Nan Lee of the restaurants Eight Arm and Octopus Bar. Opening in 2019, just before the pandemic, the menu here is concise and each taco has a distinct flavor and personality. The Al Pastor has tender pork with charred edges and juicy pineapple. Carne asada has some nice depth and smoke to it that you just don't find everywhere. The aqua chile features shrimp ceviche style on a crisp tostada, so it's more of an open-faced eat than the tacos. The barbacoa has lingering, I'm going to make up a word, aromaticness from the consomme that the lamb is cooked in, and it just lingers on your palate. The mole poblano is dark, and it's a smoky blanket over chicken, punctuated with the crunch of pepitas. The tacos here are on point, and the chori queso is a nice treat, too. Basically, it's a cheese-filled taco with ground chorizo sausage. And you know how when cheese is toasted up, it makes like an earthy, salty, crunchy shell? Well, that's what's going on here. And it comes with a tomatillo salsa fresca that's light and acidic, um, which is good because it cuts through all the richness and fat of the chori queso. Um, it's also cut into fours, which makes it perfect to share so you don't have to feel guilty about eating the whole thing. <laughs> and like its sister restaurant, Pollo Supremo, the energy here is high, it's fast, and it's young. There's standing-only patio dining, which stays in the tradition of street tacos. Taco Supremo is near the Atlanta Dairy Lofts, sharing a parking lot with grindhouse burgers so i just want to give a quick shout out to the sister restaurant pollo supremo they opened it up in 2021 and here the menu is hyper focused it's chicken you can get a quarter a half or a whole chicken as a meal with rice and beans and house-made wheat tortillas that are flaky and chewy with little crispy bits again you're going to see the house-made salsas you're going to get a pico de gallo um, a bright and spicy salsa verde, and a smoky mild salsa, uh, red salsa that goes along with. Right now, they're located on Moreland Avenue, about a mile outside of I-20, but I heard they might be relocating to Memorial Drive soon. Well, talking about salsa, you know, that brings us back to the history. So, you know, when we eat guacamole and salsa, these are actually Aztec recipes. The mm. Aztecs had a recipe that they called aquaca muli, or uh, translated avocado sauce, uh, oh. which consisted of mashed avocados with onions and cilantro, basically the exact same recipe that we use for guacamole today. And yeah. when you hear and when you hear aquacamole and guacamole, you can see that it's we're using the Aztec word for this food. Um, cool. <laughs> tomatoes as well are an indigenous fruit. Uh, they were cultivated by the indigenous people in Peru. And the Mesoamericans, including the Aztecs, they used to combine tomatoes with onions and include that ingredient with their tortillas. When the Spaniards came and they saw this, the Spaniards described uh, this as a sauce. Sauce in Spanish is salsa. And so salsa is you know, this indigenous food that we are called calling by a Spanish name and such an amazing and integral part of Mexican cuisine today. Uh, so Asada, you know, I have to know you are, of course, an incredible chef. What is your favorite way to make salsa? What would you recommend to our listeners? Well, Akila, to be honest, I've never met a salsa that I didn't like, but I learned how to make tomatillo salsa two ways in my many years as a line cook. 
from some of my coworkers who were from Mexico. And tomatillo salsa is probably super simple. The ingredients, regardless of the method, will be the same. You're going to have your fresh tomatillos, white onion, not sweet onion, but like a white bright onion, some garlic, uh, cilantro, and a little fresh lime juice for the end. Um, and then your favorite kind of peppers like jalapeno or serranos, depending on your heat tolerance. Um, you can even go with poblano if you want to make it nice and mild. The first method is you take your uh, major ingredients, your tomatillos, your onion, your garlic, and your peppers, and you cover them with just enough water so that you can boil them until the tomatillos are tender and a light green color. And then you just scoop everything out of the water and transfer it over to a blender or food processor. But hold on to that cooking liquid because you're going to pour that in to get it to the consistency that you like. Once the base is in the blender, go ahead and add your cilantro, lime juice, and salt, pulse it, run it. And then as you need, you can add the cooking liquid to get your salsa to the consistency you like. That's it. I always like to taste it so I can adjust the lime or the salt, but you chill this down and it'll last in the refrigerator a good three to five days. It actually freezes well, but I rarely have any left because I will put tomatillo salsa on anything. The second method is a little more body to it and a little deeper flavor and a little bit sweeter notes because you're gonna roast those base ingredients. So basically line a sheet with parchment paper, put your husked tomatillos, your onion, your garlic and your peppers right in onto that sheet pan, drizzle it with a little olive oil and then boom, under the broiler for about seven minutes or until those tomatillos blister. They should blister and turn black. I'm gonna take all of those ingredients and their juices, because as the tomatillos cook, they're gonna release some juice. All of that goes into the blender, again, cilantro, lime, salt, process it until it's as smooth as you want, and then again, refrigerate, and it's, it's good to go. Now, I do have a couple of variations on that. If you can't get a hold of tomatillos, you can use green tomatoes. It's gonna to have a, a milder, less acidic taste, but it's still gonna be good. Um, and you can consider playing around with a few spices. You could add some cumin or smoked paprika in there if you wanted to bring up the earthy notes. Um, if you like a lot of zing, you could add a splash of vinegar along with the lime juice. But either way, experiment and make it yours. This is the base uh, tomatillo salsa recipe. And again, it's good on everything. Eggs, tortillas, meat, beans, you name it. It's good. It sounds delicious to me. I cannot refuse salsa. Um, so I think that that's the perfect end to this episode celebrating the Caribbean and Mexican cuisines. And we need to go and get some salsa in our stomachs right now. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Chef Asada Reed and culinary historian Akila McConnell contributors for our series Atlanta Savory Stories. You can find those restaurant recommendations and Asura's recipes for this episode on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll hear about Atlanta's inaugural Art Week, Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Atlanta's 
first ever inaugural art week promises to be a celebration of Atlanta's rich and vibrant visual arts and culture scene. With over 20 participating art institutions, galleries, and cultural organizations, they're shining a light and unifying the city's thriving art ecosystem. The four-day event takes place September 29th through October 2nd. Joining me now via Zoom is the founder, art advisor, and art writer, Kendra Walker. Welcome to City Lights. Hi, thanks for having me today. Please tell us a bit about your background and what led to your career as an art advisor and art writer. I went to Georgia State University where I studied psychology and I minored in fine art with a concentration in photography. From there, I got my first internship with Arnika Dawkins where she really introduced me to the art world, which was so exciting. So I started, I started art writing, I started advising for collectors, and with that, it led to me traveling and experiencing other cities and their art and culture scenes. So tell us, please, about the inaugural Atlanta Art Week. How did you bring together those who are participating? Oh, it was so exciting. It was pretty easy to, to get everyone involved. I was surprised because everyone that I talked to, because I went in person to talk to every single person, for the most part, at least 90% of the participants. And everyone was just so excited. And even just with me and my team communicating, just how grateful they were that something like this was being created. So I think now even looking at my workload, even when it does get a little stressful, I just think back to how grateful people are that something like this is happening, you know. Can you tell us some of the participating galleries and art organizations? Yeah, there's Marsha Wood Gallery, Mason Fine Art, September Gray, Arnika Dawkins, um, Zucott Gallery, Thomas Deans Gallery, Jackson Fine Art. We have Day and Night Projects, which is super exciting as well. We have Atlantic Contemporary, which was really fun to get them to join along. I know you also have partnered with some of the organizations for special events. And I wondered about that exclusive event, the access to Mercedes-Benz Stadium's art collection. And then are you giving guided tours of the Coca-Cola collection? Yeah. So, yeah, there's going to be tours from, from both of those institutions, which I think is really exciting. I wouldn't say it's so much exclusive. I would say more so it's just limited on how many tickets are available. And it's more just like a first come, first serve thing. But there's nothing really exclusive about it, you know? It's open to the public until the tickets are gone. Are, are those tickets more expensive? So the tickets at the Coca-Cola, they're free. 
and then I think the the tickets at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium I think are like thirty five. So the relative it's not super expensive. We wanted to make things as accessible as possible. So yeah, it should be a really good time. Kendra, what's your vision for Art Week and Atlanta's art scene in the coming years? Oh, I really want to grow it. I want to grow it so I want to grow it so big. One thing in my opinion that Atlanta could really benefit from is more people in the art space coming into town and experiencing what Atlanta has to offer. So essentially that is like my goal and my mission is to get a lot of these art professionals from other cities into Atlanta. So what does that look like for 2023? It looks like creating programming that A, is attractive to Atlanta and represents Atlanta very well, but also is programming that is enticing to people from out of town. Ideally, I would love to have other galleries come into town and really experience what we have to offer here. I would love to get more writers into town. So I think that is something I'm really thinking about heavily right now is scaling and what that looks like. But that is my goal. I really wanna get people from out of town to experience what we have to offer because I think that is what's going to help continue to grow and elevate Atlanta's current art community. Hmm. And finally, as one who writes about art, how do you include or address race theory and sociopolitical research in your work? So for me personally, just really like being hyper-focused on Black artists, I really like to relate things back to what is currently happening in our world. So for example, even thinking back to a piece I wrote for Artsy on one of my favorite artists, Dominic Chambers, a lot of his work references W.E.B. Du Bois. So really just taking that approach to whatever I'm, I'm looking at and thought leaders that are writing about things that are currently happening and incorporating that into my writing is how I would say I incorporate that. So just just including like, of course, talking about the work and the visual language of the work, but then also just relating it back to like, you know, race theory and, and other things that are being talked about, you know. Kendra Walker, the founder of Atlanta's inaugural Art Week, which takes place September 29th through October 2nd. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. Hi, I'm Dana Sanmar. I am a Colombian artist living in Atlanta, and I create illustrations mainly for the children's market. I focus on two techniques, uh, digital painting and my favorite cutout paper. For my paper technique, I start by designing the illustration. Once the line work is ready, I transfer the design to different pieces of paper depending on the colors uh, and then cut each piece with an X-Acto knife. The next step is to paint the pieces and add details and assemble everything together with glue. 
I like to use spacers between the layers of paper to give the final illustration and sense of depth and a 3D effect. Nature is a big inspiration for me. I love the fluidity of organic shapes and I also love concepts related to surrealism and magic realism and stories or art that uh, play with those elements. Also, just knowing that my art can impact kids or future artists is a big motivation for me. My mom and dad uh, love books, so my sisters and I grew up with cool and pretty illustrated books around us. Also, as a kid, I was always doing crafts with my mom and playing with different mediums like embroidery, crochet, plasticine, of course, drawing and painting. So my childhood and my uh, parents play a significant role in taking the path uh, towards a creative career. I love that Atlanta offers all the benefits of a big city without being hectic and overwhelming. Um, also, the art scene is so rich and impressive. It is a constant reminder to keep learning and getting better. So I met my husband here in Atlanta while studying and that's how I end up uh, calling at home. One of our favorite spots is the High Museum. We love to spend time there and check out the newest exhibitions. Also, I love walking and driving around town to check out the new, the newest street art. And also to visit uh, different events hosted by galleries is an excellent way to check out new art in the city. You can find me at the September Drink and Doodle hosted by APB Gallery. That's a great opportunity to check out my process if anyone is interested. Uh, also, some of my original pieces are available in their catalog. And finally, you can find me on social media as Dana Sanmar. Dana Sanmar and our series Speaking of the Arts. Sanmar will participate in ABV Gallery's Drink and Doodle event on September 28th. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The 20th anniversary season of the Candler Concert Series at Emory Schwartz Center begins tomorrow evening with the Atlanta premiere of A Standing Witness, performed by mezzo-soprano Susan Graham with the Music from Copeland House Ensemble. Grammy Award-winning composer Richard Daniel Poor wrote the music with lyrics by Pulitzer Prize winner and former U.S. Poet Laureate Rita Dove. They created this song cycle specifically for Susan Graham. I'm asked which song I'm most excited to perform on this concert. Well, the songs are all so varied in style and scope. Each one feels like its own little drama. Well, I mean, not little in meaning, but just duration. <laughs> Each one is its own world, really, and it's hard to choose, but I think I look forward to the epilogue the most. It's the last piece of the cycle and the one where we find out definitively 
who the character of my voice really is, who is the standing witness. It's the moment I finally get to honestly invoke the plea and finally exhale. The songs focus on momentous events from the last 50 years in America's history. Here's a little preview of Susan Graham performing A Standing Witness. find more information about all of the upcoming concerts on schwartz.emory.edu. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about Theatrical Outfit's co-world premiere of Flex. Plus... DJ Sala Anansi shares details on the Sunset Carnival, a multimedia experience and dance party, which is part of this year's Elevate Atlanta Art Festival. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.